Hey, everybody, this is episode 46 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassain. In this episode, I speak with Dasana Hanu, poet, MC, writer, playwright, performance artist, lecturer, and educator living in Durham, North Carolina. Dasan has been featured on national radio and TV, published three books of poetry, and released a number of hip-hop and spoken word recordings. He uses his skills and resources to further social change. In 2004 and 2015, he was awarded an Indie Arts Award for his work in the community. Dasan is a resident artist at the Haytai Heritage Center in Durham and an alumni Nasir Jones Fellow with the Hip Hop Archive and Research Institute at Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. He is currently a visiting lecturer at UNC Chapel Hill and served as an artist in residence and assistant professor of English at St. Augustine's University. Dasan is managing director and co-founder of Black Poetry Theater, which is the focus of this episode. Black Poetry Theater is an African-American theater company started in 2008 that creates original productions featuring artists from the community. In our conversation, we talk about Dasan's creative process, building the capacity to make art in our community, Black Poetry Theater's upcoming residency at the Haytai Heritage Center, and the past, present, and future of the company's original theater. The Artist Soapbox podcast was started to give artists a platform to speak about their work. It's especially exciting to me when the artists can also speak their work. You'll hear two examples of Dasan speaking his original spoken word poetry to open and close our conversation. And I am not kidding you when I tell you that I have transcribed his second poem titled Today, and I keep it on my bulletin board. Oh, one more thing. If you would like to see a performance by Black Poetry Theater, check out Confessions of a Lounge Singer coming up on Sunday, September 23rd at the Haytai Heritage Center. Confessions of a Lounge Singer is an exploration of the joy and pain of artistry. At the height of the 60s, popular lounge singer Earl Treetops Johnson is struggling to hold on to his dreams, find love, and meet expectations set by those around him. This is a story full of vivid characters, musical performances, and brilliantly delivered spoken word. Ticket links and additional information are in the show notes. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Dasan. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. I'm wondering if you would start us off with some original work of yours. Sure, I can do that. There's an old man wearing a Technicolor dream coat, sitting at a street corner named Desire on a bench in front of an old laundromat. He has a cardboard sign that reads before and after. He's playing a banjo covered in superhero band-aids. His once full head of hair is now broken homes and bulimia, tattered rainforest down his cheek. Eyes Caribbean blue, skin commercial beach. You would think him all of society's transgressions until you hear him smile. All Sunday choir robe clean. He speaks in staccato. His lips are the Nicholas brothers. The words he offers are stormy weather dance scene, spoken in syncopation to the fleeting optimism in my spirit. I just want to give him a couple of dollars. He wants to give me a couple pieces of advice. I say it's a fair trade. I've bartered my time for worse. He asked me what I do. 
I say that I'm a poet. He laughs. And then he rises from that bench like Suleiman rising from the throne of a collapsing empire in Constantinople and places Marion Barry and Clarence Thomas in front of me, both his knees, shaky. He reaches into the noose holding his black pants up, pulls out a plastic flower, and he hands it to me. They say we want our roses while we can still smell them, but if they're fake, it's sort of like intention with no fruition, like dreams with no ambition. What good is appreciation if it isn't real? But then again, sitcoms have laugh tracks. After enough episodes, do you wonder if you're really funny or do you just become content knowing that there will always be laughter? His hands dance. His fingers shaking. Like the temptations, like the spinners. I noticed David Ruffin had trouble keeping up the steps. His left forefinger had been broken before, probably from holding the truth, the ability to point out other people's mistakes. He reached into his coat pocket. He pulled out an old watch. Covered in forgotten currency, 14 carat, sunburnt, with arms stuck in an empty embrace and a broken jaw. See, we've all had our face cracked, been embarrassed, ashamed, had our reputations tarnished by bad decisions, been stuck in a moment, unable to recognize that times have changed. But we're all made of valuable material and two times a day we are perfect, so there's always hope. So now I'm standing there with a look on my face as blank as Herman Cain's NAACP application. And I'm looking at this old man laughing like juke joint scamps playing a jug band rendition of ragtime in his belly. I'm so aware, yet I'm so confused. I want to give them back, but I can't. He knows that. Knows that there are no refunds, no exchanges. These symbols have already begun to be used. His composition has already begun to be written. So he taught me about judgment, about finding blessings where you least expect to find them and recognizing that sometimes wisdom comes when everything crumbles around you. So in honor of that ill-gotten ghostwriter, whenever I share this poem, I make sure that everyone know which one of us actually wrote it. The artist. Thank you so much. Does that poem have a title? Yes, it's called The Artist. It's called The Artist. Mm-hmm. And could you tell me how you wrote that? What was your process? So um, a lot of what I write comes from uh, stitching together various observations that I make and things that I'm told are here, artists who are on my street. Yeah. And in particular, there's... Um, a violinist who sits in front of the 24-hour laundromat. And so working for a number of years with Duke Young Writers Camp, it used to always, it used to give me such joy to hear these kids come from all over. And one of the things they were always excited about, about coming back was getting to go to Knife Street mm-hmm. to people watch, to be able to stop. They, they stop and get ice cream at Francesca's or, but they remembered all of the folks on Ninth Street, the artists, some of the folks who are homeless. and But I was always worried, but it was amazing to me because they saw them as being these. And, it, and I, it's the kind, I guess it's the kind of thing when you get a bunch of young artists, but they saw them as characters in this wonderful, wonderful excursion, regardless of circumstance. You know, and I was always I'd listen each summer to see if there was ever going to be a joke or anything. And no, they were just excited to be able to have a conversation. They remembered the names. And these are kids from a variety of different backgrounds, and some of them very privileged and well off. But just to see that they did not get caught up with these folks who actually, you know, some of the people who live in Durham kind of, 
you know, do not see them in right, that way. Right. And so that was what made me initially write the piece is just kind of sitting with that over those summers and thinking about that idea. And is that how most of your pieces come together? Yes, for me, yes, because I always have to um I have to sit and process what I'm gonna write. So I may have an idea and something may stick with me, but very rarely do I go from idea straight to writing. I'm, I go from idea to jotting down the thought that I had and then sitting through and processing, like, what does this thought mean? What made me react that way? What was it that drew my attention? And that's how the piece gets fleshed out. And in that process, there may be other things that I've seen or heard or other things that happen that may relate that I start to kind of just patch together to decide how I want to shape the piece. How does the transition between what is on the page and and what you hear when you speak the piece out loud, how, how does that process work? So for me, it starts by working through kind of where I want to go with the piece, um, putting it down, Sitting with the words and you know editing revision, making sure that it makes sense it has it flows it transitions, and then it's it begins the final phase is for me to actually share the piece so usually what I'll do is I'll find a space even if it's just to read it just because i want I want to hear it because it helps me hear how the piece moves right um and then I can kind of just see how you know how people respond to it. Um, if I decide that it's a piece that I'm going to to do something with, then I'll memorize it. And then for me, the memorization process is not done until I can say it. So then I'll make my way back to an open mic to say the piece. Mm-hmm. And then I'll listen to see if it feels comfortable, if, if it, it moves the way I want it. Because there is a difference from reading it to doing it and and so there's that pro- that process before I'm really comfortable with the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, up until then, like there's always you know some worry, some concern. I may make some changes and edits, but um, once I've gone through that whole process and I feel comfortable with it and I've got it in my head, that's usually when the piece is 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 at least complete in that moment. Do other people perform your work, or do you write for other people to perform? Other than other than the theater company, no. That was sort of my first experience in doing so. And it's really interesting. It's really interesting to hear how people interpret it. The only other time, which is not to the same level, is because I'm involved in Poetry Slam. We we have the ability on when you do a team slam to write pieces collaboratively, mm. which means that you you each poet may be saying work that was written by the other poet that's a part of the piece. But usually it's a couple of lines. It may be a stanza. Um, it wasn't until until uh, working in the theater that I wrote something that I actually got to watch someone perform the entire piece. And then actually for me, that actually led to, you know, for a couple of pieces led to edits. Because I'm like, now I'm hearing a different voice with a different, who does who didn't, who's who doesn't have the same understanding of the piece. And I can see where it's tough for them. And I'm like, Oh, okay. All right. And so that then there's another thought process that goes through and kind of, you know, hearing the piece. Yeah. Let's talk about Black Poetry Theater. Mm-hmm. You're coming up on a 10-year anniversary mm-hmm. of founding this, of co-founding, mm-hmm. right? 
Why did you form this company and how has it evolved over time? Well, initially it was just sort of just getting this bug. Myself and um, the other co-founder, Church the Poet, um, had participated in a production that he was responsible for putting together called Black Poetry. And we worked with um, Lee Lester Holmes. And at the time, it was APET, APET Theater, Alternative Perspective Ensemble Theater. APET was the company that she had. And she was um, in the area and performing um, and doing work with Man Bites. And she got the idea for wanting to direct a piece that was centered around poetry. Um, she met Church. And they started to kind of flush out the idea. And he just asked the collective poets that they wanted to participate. And so what it was, was um, a, a large ensemble performance piece that was a patching of different poems together. And what Lee did was she blocked and staged all the poems. Some of us had had theater back, have been in theater before. Um, nobody extensively in my experience in theater had been with traditional works. And so it was a unique experience because I you know, by that point in time, I had been on stage for a long time, but never in that way. Um, and like I said, my, my theater experience um, was in, you know, with traditional works, um, August Wilson and pieces, you know, where you had very specific lines and very specific roles. Um, I had only been in one other performance piece. And even then that was, was a di totally different process. Um, I was working with um, Herman Laverne Jones on a piece for the National Black Theater Festival. And it was a mix of drama and dialogue and music and movement. And so um, and it was a really thick piece. Um, so we were just experimenting and we loved it. And so Lee ended up moving. And so we were like, OK, the person who got us into this isn't here so we sat and we asked ourselves, okay, are we going to just try this? Yeah, and, and we both said, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just try it and see what happens. So we kept showing that first piece and I sat down to work on our second piece. And what it was, was a friend of ours who is a um, anti-violence advocate. Her name is Monica Day. She had just started an organization called Stand Up, Speak Up, Speak Out. She was doing um, a fun. It was October, and it was it was Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and she was putting together some programs. She was like, "I love for y'all to do something." So I had a short skit that I had created. It was initially just for Valentine's Day for an event in Raleigh, and they wanted to do something special for Valentine's Day that was that involved poetry, but they, they were like want something different. Well, I was like, you know, I centered this around two couples. Mm -hmm. And they can be speaking back and forth through poems. So that's that's essentially what it was. So I took that and expanded that to include Monica's story, which is her being a survivor of both. And so took some of her pieces, built out the story around these two couples. And that became our second piece. It was initially called Her Story of Love, A Stronger Day, um, with, was the play on Monica's last name. And that was our second piece. Mm. And it was our first piece that was, that had scenes and it's in, it's in two acts and was a, a, a moving towards bridging what we knew in terms of spoken word with 
more traditional theater. But it was our opportunity to be able to also involve the poets from the area. And so we were like, wow, this is a, we got a good reception. We got to give poets an opportunity to be in a different space and be on a different platform. And we saw it as an opportunity. So we just kept going. What is your catalog at this particular point for, for Black Poetry Theater? So there's six, there's six original pieces that we've done. And we've presented and co-directed and produced two productions that were written by other playwrights. So we've, we started with Black Poetry, her story, which is now her story through his eyes, because it's gone through a, a variety of iterations. Um, we did that. We did Definition of, Hero, of a Hero, which initially was a Father's Day production, but now has, has also changed. Confessions of a Lounge Singer, which was intended to be, was initially written as a one-man show. I wasn't, I didn't do that very well because every time we did the production, everybody was like, we want the other characters. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're now going to do that as an ensemble piece. It's like, okay, obviously I didn't do this The right. audience speaks. You yeah. must listen. <laughs> obviously I didn't do this right. Um, and so there's those um, four productions. We did in a production. Uh, I got this kind of wacky idea and we did a production called The Game, which was our largest ensemble piece. And those are those are our five full productions. So it's five full productions. We have a couple of readings. We did Love Letters to My Child, which we collected. We actually did a call for um, letters, primarily from mothers, to their children, past, present, and future. And we took, a, took the entire collection and published a book and then picked selections out to do a stage reading. Uh, so we did that. We did another reading, very similar, but with the work of a friend of ours who passed. And so we did a commemorative performance um, based on his works. When we initially started, we had um, some amazing, amazing women participating in the cast. And so we asked, we encouraged them to put together a piece that we were like, just tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. We don't want to. We not. We don't want to write it. We don't want to direct it. We don't want to do anything. Just tell us what you what you need for us to do to. to create the space for it to happen. And they created a piece called um, Epic of Eve, which was much like Black poetry. It was um, a patchwork of, of different performances that sort of kind of talked about the role of a woman. And it was really interesting because that was their first, you know, once again, it's one of those first time doing it and you, some things work, some things don't work. Some right. things, one of what people say is, but it was a beautiful experience. And, um, and then, like I said, we've helped a couple of other playwrights, whether they wanted to test a piece and do a, do, you know, we pulled together a reading or if they had a script ready and done and we kind of just helped to pull the cast together and, and kind of like make the, make it come to life. That's a lot of original work. And I mean, because you have a very full life of other projects mm-hmm. as well. I mean, everybody involved in the company does. Mm-hmm. So, and especially if those pieces have had multiple performances, a lot mm-hmm. of them, that's a very active company over the last decade. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that that you all are in residency for the first time with the Haytai Heritage Center in Durham and the Art Center in Carborough. Yes. Now you have been in residence with with Haytai, right? Have you yes. been an artist in residence there? Mm-hmm. But this is now the company. Yes. Okay. So how will that be structured for you as a company? How did it come about? Well, one of the things it that the Haytai actually won. I think through the National Performance Network, they won a grant. And part of the grant was 
um, assistance in organization development. So just looking at programs and functionalities and marketing and all the aspects of, of making the nonprofit really, really work. And so what that did was that sparked a conversation about current programs and new programs and possibilities. And I raised it and I was like, well, you know, we'd love to be here. And I know I, it was on my mind, had been on my mind for a couple of years that we would just love to be. And partly because the, especially the pieces that we do would work with that performance hall. Um, They can, they can scale up, they can scale down. And so there are some things that we wouldn't need that we don't necessarily need that another company might, depending on what kind of pieces, Mm -hmm. Um, which is just sort of the value of doing original pieces, how much lighting, what kind of things that you need is totally up to you. And in terms of how you want, um, how you, how you manipulate suspension and disbelief. And so I thought, felt that that was an advantage for our, for our production. So I pitched it and they were like, we love it. And they had been thinking that they wanted some more theater. So they've had some productions um, there, but not as much as they wanted. And so we agreed and we'll be, we agreed to do four productions over the year, August, 2018, all the way through June, 2019. Four shows. Four shows. And will they be original pieces or? So we're going to, initially we were going to rerun our, the pieces that we already have, but what's actually going to happen. And I'm pleased about this is we're going to do two pieces that we already have. First, and then we'll close the season by doing two new pieces, which is going to be really, really exciting. So I have, I have a work in progress that uh, we're going to put up to start off 2019. And then Church has a piece that he is working on with some artists from the community on, and they've had that idea for, for a little while now. And they've sat down, created the concept, and they're starting to flesh that out. So we're going to close with that. Okay. We'll add. Um, We'll add two more productions. Wow. So you will be performing at both venues then during this next season? One of the things about it that makes this a little bit easier is I'll probably only be in um, no more than two of the four, which is good. Um, So my responsibility mainly to make sure the script is done, the pieces are written and in terms of directing. And usually I, we, we, we kind of share directing responsibilities. I make sure to handle most of the logistics for everything. Um, church handles all the tech. And we have um, another another poet and performer. Her name is Debrita Calloway. Um, poetically, she's known as Wild Perfection, and she helps. So she's we brought her in as another director and another voice. Mm-hmm. And then if she's not in the production... Then uh, she usually handles stage management for us. What advantages do you see for the company being in residence? Well, it's one is just to to have a sense of home. Yeah. You know, we know where we're going to be for the year. It makes us easier to plan, um, to schedule tech, to just know exactly how everything is going. Um, the other is to have a partner. Which is, you know, it's a wonderful thing. The HI is really excited about having the having us there, and then to have a partner to think through, like, how can we make this the best experience? You know, how do we want to run the box office? Mm-hmm. What kind of things do you need to make sure you're ready day of show? Which normally we'd have to think through all of that, um, especially 
you know, renting a space, even even though you had, there's some partnership because you're renting the space, it's still you still have to think through everything. And then also what was really important was to help to kind of be a bridge for various communities by being at the Haytai mm-hmm. so that, you know, we know there are theater folks who are going to hopefully want to come and see their are pat- longstanding patrons, patrons of the Haytai that I hope will see what the production is about and want to come to see their poetry lovers um, who are also going, you know, to come see the production and having them all converge at the Haytai was important, especially for me, because I think that it's an important place and to have that activity, I think will be important. Um, and so that's the importance of the residency at the Haytai. What's really cool about the art center is that the art center has, you know, it's been around for a long time and I've been involved in a variety of different shows and things at the art center, but meeting the the new director was to hear them talk about wanting to make sure that it was accessible for the community, which some spaces have, that's been one of the concerns. Mm. It's like, we've, you know, you might get asked to be a part of something that's happening, but to see shows be staged in there from the community with all of the amazing, you know, the companies, the creatives, the, the, the artists that are here is, is important. And that those voices are diverse and disparate. And so for us to be there was important. And it also gave us an opportunity with uh, what we pitched was the opportunity to, to develop a work in progress. And so, on our side, it also gives us the opportunity to be able to take a couple of artists from the community and walk them through the creation of a piece, which we hope will spark new ideas. And one or two of them may, you know, over the course of the next year, end up putting together a show of their own that mm-hmm. then we can, so that we can, you know, we can continue to produce original pieces, but they're not all ours. Right, right. <laughs> because so far, so far, we've written most of these pieces um and so that we can try try to incubate a little bit more of that work so you're talking about local artists that you have you worked with them prior to Mm -hmm. this year okay but you're going to be walking through this work in progress Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. it's sort of like a mentorship kind of it's sort of it's it's an active workshop and so um what i'll do is i'll i'll guide them through I'll lay out what the piece is going to be about, guide them through their thoughts about the creation, developing the scenes, how it's going to flow, what pieces um, to add to it, um, transitions, all those things. And what we're going to do is we will do three readings in different stages of the piece. And then the, the once the piece is finished, it will be the whole piece will be staged. Nice. Okay. So um, there'll be an opportunity to to walk through the piece, and then there'll be a finished the finished piece will be ready to go. Now, when you think about these readings, part of it, I think, I'm guessing, is just to hear it out loud. Mm-hmm. And once I don't want to speak for you, but I know that when I've heard my work spoken aloud, it's really easy to know, like, oh, that doesn't work or that does work. You just need somebody else to say it out loud in a room. But is it also an opportunity for community members who are in the audience to give feedback? Is Mm -hmm. that why those readings exist as well? Yes. Okay. And this is a new new thing that just was in my brain. 
And when I talked with the Art Center, I was like, I don't think we have enough opportunity to be able to test works very often. And because space is at a premium, just so much to consider. You create something and you just hope it works. Mm-hmm. But you don't know until you do it because there's not many opportunities to 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 try it. Like you may only get one date. <laughs> so um or one weekend or whatever. So that opportunity to be able to do that is rare. To just test it. Yeah. Say like, am I on the right track? Mm-hmm. Is this working? Like before you put in all of that work to fully produce it. Yeah. And then then you see, oh, it didn't work. Or, oh, wait, it did work. You know, and yeah, it's nice to have. And I don't know. I think I'm really interested to hear what you think about this. So when you do a reading for an audience, what questions do you pose to them about the piece? What are you looking to hear from them? I want to know if the scene works and does it make sense? Do the transitions work? Like how we move from moment to moment? Do they feel that anything's missing? Is there something that they want to know that they don't feel? Questions that, that they never got answered? Um, because they may it may all tie together as, as, as on the writer's mind, but it doesn't mean that that all actually made its way out. So are there loopholes? Are there, are there uh, inconsistencies? Um, and then there's some scenes, did the emotion of it work? Um, was it convincing? Um, and it's a good thing. You know, it's one thing I've learned. If it works on the page, it's easier for the actor to really make it live on stage. Otherwise, you just you put a lot of pressure on the actor to try to like pull the emotion out of it and have to kind of like, you know, really, really recreate the scene or really, really. So that's the opportunity to be able to say, hold on. Like you heard this. Does this really read right? If not, then let's see what we need. What do you think should happen? Or um, does it feel authentic? Does it feel real? You know, one of the beautiful things about it is that, you know, a talented actor can make it work, but that's just a lot of extra work. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us some information about what the piece that you're working on is going to be about? So, um, <laughs> it's a really, really unique process. So, we're calling it a remix. So, much like the idea of remixing a song. And so, what it's going to do, it's going to be centered around some traditional pieces traditional pieces that are going to be remixed and remade. And so that, so there's going to be a couple of layers. I didn't want to do a spoof. And so what we're going to, so instead we're going to take some of these traditional pieces. um, And um, one of the things about it is they're going to be primarily um, 10 minute plays or shorts that we're going to use and remix those and then build a story around those. So we'll, the first piece will be taking those, those, those traditional plays from traditional playwrights. One of the pieces I know is a Sherlock Holmes piece. Um, and take the short plays, remix them, and then take those and then figure out how to build an, a larger story around those pieces and a world that those fit in. The whole idea is to take pieces that don't connect and make them connect. Um, it's a really interesting experiment. I'm interested to see how it works. Um, it's sort of a reflection of also how I teach poetry uh, because 
one of the things that I'm, I'm big on is a big on process. And so what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to take one script and say, let's modernize it or spoof it. Um, Cause that's pretty straightforward, but it doesn't necessarily convey a writing process mm-hmm. for developing an idea. So I said, well, okay, well let's take some pieces because that will give us a foundation that we can remix and, and modernize and do whatever with. But then let's not stop there. So now that you have these pieces, okay, well, what can we create? What world can we create where these pieces actually connect in some way? Now you understand the process of like, I have an idea. So then how do I build this idea out? Mm-hmm. But because we have a short time frame, we're not starting from scratch because I would have never wanted to do that. So I said, we had to start somewhere, but how do I still kind of replicate the process that they would go through if they were sitting down with an idea or a couple of scenes in their head and trying to figure out how to develop this story. So that's what we're going to try to do. I'm hoping it works in my mind. In my mind, it works. We'll see what happens. I think that sounds really exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's what we're all trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. Is take all of these things that in life that don't seem to quite fit together and make sense of them and, mm-hmm. and see the connections. And mm-hmm. I feel like, as artists, that seems to be one of our a primary contribution that mm-hmm. we're trying to make. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to see where that goes. And it actually brings to mind something that you mentioned when we were talking before this podcast interview, and that is um, you were you were talking about how you think about what traditional theater is, mm-hmm. and then you think about what black poetry theater is, and then try to figure out how to bridge the gap between mm-hmm. the two or see the relationship mm-hmm. between the two. How are you doing that now? Is it different than when you started? It's very different. And the difference is, is that beginning this process really made me go back to theater in a different way. Initially, when I was participating in the productions I participated in, I was just happy to be on stage. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't study theater in school um, I was just, you know, just, and if it was particularly for me, cause I'm, I'm both introverted and I grew up shy. So like just being a part of a production where, you know, no matter what lines I had or what have you, um, was just exciting. Cause it was a chance for me to, to, to be in a way that I normally wouldn't be. So that's all that was. And so I had a, I had a little bit of an understanding when I got I got a chance um, at my undergraduate alma mater to do um, a residency, arts residency. Initially, I was just doing writing workshops, uh, creative writing workshops, and as a at different times as part of all of the general education English classes. So I would visit all of the classes, and I'd have um, I'd be on each professor's syllabus as part of their schedule for the semester. And I would just visit all of the sections just as a resource for any of the students on campus who were, were interested in creative writing. Cause there weren't any, there weren't any creative writing classes. It was a, as a major, it was a lit literature based major. And then of course you, as a service department, it, you know, you teach all the English composition classes. After a couple of years, there was a really good response from students who um, were coming in and had background in poetry, were in a poetry club and so they decided to introduce an intro class, but it's the only course. And so it was multi. So, so <laughs> got to get a lot in that intro course. <laughs> right. So, so, so what happened was, is that I ended up deciding to 
to um, sequence it in a way where you got an introduction to a variety of genres because there was a theater department. So it was like, if you got it introduced to a variety of different things, then you can decide to either um, you like the poetry, then maybe we could, we could get you into at the time was trying to start a poetry club. If you, if we did an introduction to playwriting and a, you know, a little bit of screenwriting, then we had film and theater departments and maybe that was a good way. Um, So just to do that. And then we covered short fiction. And so that happened right about right at the same time. I, I started the residency in, in 2006, uh, which is when we first started working on black poetry. The first time I think we put it on stage was in 2007. 2008 was when we decided, like, let's keep doing this. And that was my first time sitting down and, 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 and helping to put the curriculum together for the, the intro course. So I'm sitting and I'm now looking at, like, how do I introduce a young writer to the idea of thinking through a script as I'm for the first time writing my first production. And so what happened is being introduced in a different way into the theater world suddenly had me going, looking to see new, new pieces and looking to see pieces by playwrights. I didn't know, um, had me, you know, in the audience, like studying like, Oh, and both traditional and experimental, because I just wanted to see how people made spaces work. Um, it was probably the first time that I really paid attention to productions that were black box, as opposed to going to see, you know, large scale productions at, you know, Burning Coal or, mm-hmm. or um, Progress Energy Theater. But, but it made me look, it made me dig a little bit. I remember going to the National Performance Network's conference for the first time and seeing some really, really, really abstract pieces. Uh, and really getting a better, a bigger understanding of what performance art was and um, street theater. And just so I never paid attention to it before. And it was really, really important to me. And it had a big impact on how I envisioned shaping these pieces because we're building these pieces around these poems. And, you know, I didn't have a background in musical theater. It was the closest parallel. So once I started seeing some of the other things that folks were doing, I was like, okay, I got a better sense of how we can make this work. Uh, And then it was amazing because it also had an influence on me as a performer, even for my work in spoken word, because just seeing different embodiments of text. So that's the biggest change. It really opened up the possibilities. And so in shaping some of the pieces and, you know, being responsible, you know, for putting the scripts together, um, it just sort of kind of just widened my scope of what we could pull off. Is there something that you would like to evolve into stylistically? Like when you think of new work that you're going to create down the line, is there something else that you want to try? Do you want to do something that is more musical theater? Like I know that in the piece that mm-hmm. I saw, there was music mm-hmm. and in, in some ways the structure was like musical theater mm-hmm. because you had the scenes and then you sort of had mm-hmm. solos mm-hmm. and then, but I don't know. Do you have anything that's kind of percolating in your mind about a, a new way of doing what I want to do is I'm working on th- just thinking about developing larger, well, not larger, more intricate stories where what I'd like to get to is um, because 
part of one of the things we've done is that the work we've worked to make sure the, that it that it moves, but it's still there's still really distinct pieces. And so the first thing was learning how to tie the pieces and we and weave the pieces together. Now I want to think about how do you really, 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 really blend that so that there's not maybe a whole piece and but that that the story moves, the scenes can be layered and it it really just kind of builds. It may mean larger ensemble cast, mm-hmm. which is something that we, you know, we haven't done. I think we did the game and that was my first really kind of intricate piece. And I think we may have had 12 characters in that piece. We were, we were both. That's a lot. It's a, yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot. And partly because, you know, we were still learning what it meant to have actors double up. And so once again, thinking about what does that mean and how that looks and just understanding how to really, really create more intricate pieces. So the next piece that I'm, that I'm working on um, and part of why the residency at the art center is so important was, was really interesting for me is just a step in thinking through like how to do, to tell these multi-layered stories while still keeping poetry and music and keeping it multi-genre, right. um, which is what I don't want to lose. If, if, I, if I was commissioned to think through and sit and write a production that was just dialogue and drama and movement, I could. But it's, it's not as exciting to me as being able to figure out how the music and the performance and you know how that can move the piece along. When you think about Black Poetry Theater, if you were to describe it to someone who's never seen your work, mm-hmm. what do you think are some signature elements? Like, how would I know if I saw five or six shows, mm-hmm. how would I know what I was seeing was yours? Well, I think one of the signature elements is um, it's going to be the the usage of uh, of poetry and music. There's a range of emotion in both the music that we use and the pieces that we integrate. You know, if you you know a black poetry theater production because the pieces are intended to move you, um, that they, they're, they're they're not just they don't just tie one scene or one moment into the next, and that's just a reflection of the poetry community as we see it. Like our job when we touch the stage is to touch and move people. And so um, at the heart of every production are those pieces are chosen to make sure to reach and grab you. The other thing is there's going to be some, at some point in time, there's going to be some celebration. doesn't matter how harsh or dark or how heavy it gets. uh, We believe in celebration. And so there's going to be a celebration and a joyous one at that in every piece. And then the other thing is that, um, you know, there's a little bit, I've, what's funny is I've noticed what I consider to be Southern, but there's a little bit of Southerness in that there's, um, there's always going to be a little bit of sass and spirit <laughs> in everything, wherever it can fit in, where you least might not expect it, but there's going to be some of that. Whether there's some wit, the turn of phrase, there's just there's some job. There's going to be some of that there, and 
it, and it's in all of the productions. And I, and I think that that's both myself and church, you know, I'm from North Carolina. He's, he's, he is a, truly a Southern boy out of Nashville, Tennessee. And so that feels familiar to both of us. And so that has become, and even the artists that we bring in with us, they, they, they jump, they like, regardless of where they're from, <laughs> they jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that has just become uh, one of those distinct parts of it so that this company um, has a little bit of Southern, I love the Southern spice to it. Yeah. You've, you guys have been around for a long time and I've seen one production in the last 10 years that you've, mm-hmm. that you have, have put together, but I was there for, it was definition of hero mm-hmm. for the bull city black theater festival. And I was really struck by the audience response mm-hmm. to that. People were genuinely moved there was a talk back afterwards and people participated willingly, which mm-hmm. doesn't always happen in mm-hmm. talk back. And I was really struck by the performers on stage and your willingness to, to be really vulnerable and present and engage the audience. It, I didn't feel like there was a wall between the performer and the audience. Mm-hmm. It was very much about connecting with the people in the seats. Mm-hmm. And I don't always feel like that. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't, um, I didn't get a sense that y'all were hiding up there. Mm-hmm. It was about, I'm going to be real with you. Mm-hmm. Let's all be in the space together and be real together. And I was, I really appreciated that. And that's just, that's just emotional content. That doesn't even touch the artistry that you all were displaying with the the words that you wrote and the way that you perform them and the and the rhythm and the musicality. And then you had a, a wonderful singer. And I mean, there was so much in that mm-hmm. performance to really enjoy. So thank you for that work. And mm-hmm. um, I know that in addition to creating new art, it's really important to you to create safe space for making art and for building the capacity for art. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Why it's important to you? Well, as you were saying that, the thing that sticks out to me is that one of the other things about creating this company was that bringing artists into the theater who may not have ever acted before, but have performed and helping them to understand what that nuance between those two things are. But what it does is, is that vulnerability and that openness they bring with them because it's a part of it's a part of our lives as artists individually. Uh, when we take that stage and how well we connect and reach and touch in that moment is part of just how we how we make our way. How you show up, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so to bring that in is a part of being able to then say no. It's it's the same thing here, like, and that's what's going to make this piece unique. And so creating pieces. And having it in our minds, you know, I'm always thinking there's going to always be some roles that you want a little bit of savvy and, and, and experience with, but still half, if not most of that cast are artists and that is what they're bringing. It opens up the theater to them, but what it also does is it brings that vulnerability and openness and that honesty into the productions. Um, and that's part of it is, you know, just creating a platform where that can happen, but it can be introduced to a group of folks who may not 
have ever stumbled into that poetry reading or stumbled into that open mind, but who who love the work, you know, and who can connect and can see themselves in what's being what's being performed. So it's like, okay, well, they may not ever come over there, but no, you y'all come over here because there's a body of folks who love art who I believe, I know will will connect with what you do. So let's give it, let's give it a let's give it a platform. Let's let's give it give it a space for it. So that was part of what we wanted to do with the company. And I believe that's important. You know, my residency at the Haytai is a is a part of that. Um I committed to being at the Haytai because if I'm there and it gives me an opportunity to think about programming where we can if I if I'm out and I see poets, it's like, well, I know I know where there's a stage for you. Mm. So you can come on over here and I'll I'll bust my butt to try to put some folks, you know, however many they are in the seats to hear you. Come over here. And the artists get to meet each other. They get to introduce themselves to an audience. The audience both can support that artist, but they also can see that artist, they can see those artists grow. They can see what they have to offer. I know that if 50 people show up, there's probably eight, nine artists in that audience. And when they leave, like I used to leave spaces like, okay, here I go. I'm going home to write. Or, you know, I can't wait to create. And then now I know where I can eventually go. And so just continuing to plant those seeds and allow them to blossom so that there's like this steady flux of artistry happening that I hope continues and forces then the city to respond by saying, well, here's all this groundswell of artistry. What are we going to do with it? Where is it going to be? Um, what's What doors are we going to open for it? Because there's also not only a groundswell of artistry, but there's a bunch of people who are like, we want this. And we showed up somewhere and it wasn't there. So <laughs> when are we going to get it? So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that we can contribute to. But that's that's what I mean by creating that capacity in that space. Because as artists, we're going to create whether anybody gives us a space to share it or not. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice to have a space yeah. to share it? Yeah. yeah. And get you out of that that silo. Every time artists gather, we always talk about how excited we are to be around other creatives. It doesn't matter what we're gathered for. It could be a meeting or whatever, but when we're in the room, we're just excited to see each other because we spend so much time, you know, living lives and then creating to be in the room with each other. It's just, an, you would just, you know, I mean, you're just excited. Mm-hmm. And then if you get to like create something together, you're even more excited. So like, I'm like, okay, so how can I facilitate a space where artists get to create together? Um, if they only get to do it once, at least they know it's possible. And maybe when they go away, they'll, they'll eventually figure out how to, gather with three or four more artists and create something else. Um, but how do we, where do you get that first experience? What came first for you? Was it spoken word? Did you write poetry? Were you an actor? Like how, how did these things <laughs> connect <laughs> through your life to get you where you are? So it's an interesting question. Uh, writing and reading was first and foremost. And that was because I grew up as an only child and my mother's the oldest sibling so on that side of the family, because I was I was primarily with my mother, 
um, because when my mother and father were high school sweethearts, so she had me very young. So uh, she's the oldest sibling, and I'm the oldest grandchild on that side of the family. So I'm the only kid for a long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Got to find something to do. Right, Hang out because, with the grownups. <laughs> right. Um, because she, you know, she was a teenage mother, and of course, you know, there's, you know, there's that stigma. So ideally, nobody else was supposed to be. So like, it was a while before anybody else got old enough <laughs> to be in a relationship to have a child. So I'm the only kid, and so I was, you know, there's those moments of being encouraged, you know, and given books and things to write and read. And so, writing was first. I wasn't. Um, I'm an introverted. I'm an introvert, and so very kept to myself, um, very quiet. In high school, if my friends were doing something that I participated in, and I went to a high school that invested a lot because it was a magnet school in performing arts, they had invested a lot of money. And so I never actively participated in theater, but my friends participated in some of the talent shows and things like that. So I participated with them because we had this state of the art. I mean, Mm -hmm. they would spend money on productions. And so I just benefited from having friends who were just like natural characters. They could sing, dance. And so, you know, we're friends. And so you're like, well, come, you know, just be in the background. And I'm like, sure. So that was, otherwise you're not getting me on stage. And so in immediate, when I left high school, I immediately reverted back. So there were folks who, in college, there were folks who knew I wrote, but I wasn't showing up to any open mic, nothing. You know, I was out of my cover zone. My friends were off wherever. And, Nope. So I kind of reverted back and it was just writing. When I came um, came home back to Raleigh from college and found out that there was a kind of like bohemian art scene that had formed. And the catalyst was I went I went out to an event because some of my friends heard that it was just a good time that was just full of people. And they had a dance party at the end. They had drumming. It was just this really, really, really eclectic kind of cultural cultural vibe. It only happened once a month. So I went and it turns out that I found friends that I had grown up with, you know, who had gone off to school and became artists. Hmm. And they were back home creating art. They were painters and musicians and writers. And they were the ones who encouraged me to come to the open mic that had started and stayed on me to get on the mic. And it really was because it was the same thing like high school. There were people I knew who gave me the space to be like, well, I know y'all, so I'll do this. Otherwise I would have, I would have not. Mm. And only this time I got the bug. And so, and that's and it's and that's where it started. It just kind of opened up this world for me. Um, one of the things about it was when I came home from school, I didn't I, I didn't come home because I graduated. I, so they came home. They were coming home because they finished school. I was I was at home because I went off to school and I was a total wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was also sort of the art has you know has always been one of my outlets. It was just a way to kind of make order of things um, because I was home. I was like, I don't, what am I going to do with myself? I was working. And, and even at the time when I first walked into an open mic, I was, you know, I was working, uh, was making decent money. I was young. So the money went really, stretched really far. But 
it, it provided me with a way to kind of work through things. And so that kind of gave me my entry point. And then being around this talent, um, I just started soaking it in the same, same, it was the same kind of thing that happened with me about theater. I'm like, Oh, you mean there are more portrait spots? I never knew this was a thing. Hold on. There's a, there's a, there's a, hold on. What? There's a new year weekend in New York. That's what they like. These they're festivals, like, hold on. They're like festivals where people do this stuff. Hmm. And I just started at a car, had keys, couple dollars in my pocket. I just started going everywhere there was art. I started going um, if there were performers that were visiting the colleges that I never thought about paying attention before. I started going to hear their their talks, their performances and just soaking in. And finally, someone challenged me and said, what do you really want to do with with this? You you seem to love it. You seem to really enjoy it. Is this something you want to take seriously? And that stuck with me. And I made the decision. I said, no, I really want to take, uh, this is something that I want to invest my time in. And so that's, that was the catalyst. But writing was where it all started. It was just an outlet for me. I read a lot. Um, I read a lot of mystery stuff and a lot of, a lot of sci-fi. So I liked to be pushed. You know, I like vivid imagery. I like to be pushed to think. If I wasn't reading those books, I was actually flipping through textbooks because I didn't know what was in them. So they were curious to me. So I used to read old textbooks because I'm like, I don't know what I don't know what Ian says, but it's fascinating because I don't know what it is. So let me see if I can figure out any of it. But I like that process. And that's what art offered me. It offered me like it's like a thousand piece puzzle. And it was the same thing with theater. Like I had this new puzzle in front of me mm-hmm. and I've been trying to like finished the puzzle ever since. One of the things for me that I think is important about um, Black Poetry Theater existing and one of the whole things I hope I do with my art is the, the idea of creating a space for yourself. If there's something missing, you know, in so many different other aspects of our life, if something's missing, they say create it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to any business seminar, they're like, you know, if it's missing, there's an opportunity. But you don't hear that conversation about art. And so we create as artists, we're pushed to encapsulate ourselves. And so we end up limit we end up being limited by what's pop, what's available. And so if there's not a space or a platform or a stage or not, but no one ever tells us that if it's missing, then it's an opportunity and create it. No one says, no one ever says. You know, that it doesn't have to be this one way. Mm. And especially being here in North Carolina or being down South, it was just important to do this. Like it wasn't until we tried this that I then found out that there was so much avant-garde art and so many different kinds of experimental things that were being done and seeing a number of kinds, whether I liked it or didn't, because there's some stuff I was just like, I have no idea what's going on right now. I'm, is it, y'all all seem like you get this. I'm, okay, maybe it's just me, but this seems really strange. But to see it be done and people show up to see it, I'm like, oh, okay, so much is possible. But mm, I, nobody, nobody ever, nobody, nobody ever said it. So if we are here and someone sees us and you're like, oh, y'all just okay, so y'all just made this up. Then, yeah, we did. And we were just committed to it. And we figured out, we found a place to do it. And we just did it and told people and tried to make it as good as possible. 
and here we are, mm-hmm. that you can do the same thing too. And we'll be better for it because of the art that comes out of it. Because guaranteed, there's somebody that has a really, really strange idea. And it's showing next week. <laughs> so, why not? Well, it sounds like you are modeling what is possible. Mm-hmm. And all of the things that you're talking about, about forming relationships, how important that was to you as the as developing your own artistry mm-hmm. and finding the encouragement and mm-hmm. making space and, you know, the, the taking a chance on this career path. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful example for poets, but for artists generally of what could, what can be mm-hmm. if you just, if you make it for yourself and, and you are doing a great service by offering to be in collaboration with other people in the community is there something that you would like to speak for us or read for us as a way to close this? Mm. Yes. A lot of times I think about just the way that we think about how we should do things. And it's tough. It's, it's tough. As an artist, it's extremely tough, both when you see it and when it happens to you. Because there's this part of your life that's all about possibilities and stretching the boundaries. And even being someone who creates and does that doesn't mean that you, it, it's like it just it pulls you away from having those moments in your own life where you, it becomes very limiting and, and very heavy. And so I think about that, and that sort of recurs um, time and time again in my writing. We, that idea of self determination, like, you have the right to determine how things go and there shouldn't be any reason to believe it should be a way unless that's the way you want it. But it's hard. Um, It's a very hard thing. Okay. And it's called today. Um, And this was, this was wrote this piece. One of the, one of those days where that was weighing heavy on my spirit. And I was like, you know what? I'm nope. I'm not, I'm not doing this. Not definitely not today. Today. I thought of me. I slept like nothing else mattered. I slept until nothing else mattered. Woke up and it all did, but I was ready for it. Today, there was no need for cape, armor, conference room, white horse, throne, or wood plank promise. Today was sanctuary and strategy, renewal and refuge, solitude and solace. What a refreshing selfishness it is to say in due time and mean it. Today, I made pressure wait, left contrition, wondering if I was going to call back. I ain't. Gave responsibility some space to explore some other options. Rolled over and snuggled with accountability for a few minutes longer in celebration of me finally listening to her advice today. Still today. And I ain't lost nothing but burden. Ain't sacrificed nothing but stubbornness. Ain't avoided nothing but burnout. Going to be even better today. Gonna be even more effective today. Gonna be more of myself today. And Lord knows, ain't nobody gonna be ready for what I come up with tomorrow. What a wonderful way to close this out. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that we have this recorded so that I can listen to it. (laughs) Thank you you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. 
Support the podcast via a monthly donation starting at $1 a month via our Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. See our website, artistsoapbox.org, for more details. This episode was recorded at the Artist Soapbox Home Studio. Theme music by local composer Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out. <laughs>